and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 19 through 20, and coming at you from the great state of Texas. Texas. Welcome to another edition of Bridge Radio. Welcome, welcome, everyone, and uh, it's a joy and pleasure to have you with us. If you are new to the program, hit the subscribe button and be sure to share it with your family and friends. We are available across all major podcast platforms. You can also tune in by downloading our Bridge app, now available across all app stores, actually. Simply type in Bridge Ministries and you'll see our logo, name, and slogan, which is coffee and good news. Hit the download button to not only listen to this program, but also expository sermon series through books of the Bible. You can read devotionals and also to register and find out more information about our Bible studies that are here if you live in the community of Laredo, Texas. I'm your host, Julio Rodriguez, as always, and across from me, I have the president of this whole shebang, Mr. Steve Denhartop. What's up, y'all? Thanks for being with us today. So, on today's program, uh, in recent years, there has been a resurgence in interest in the doctrines of grace, the Protestant Reformation, and the Reformers, and also a thirst for sound biblical theology. Can you agree with this, Steve? We've seen it here. Absolutely. I think we're getting back to a, a, a longing for the big God theology once again, which is just refreshing to see. Yeah, it is. It is. And, and there's been a, a this sort of movement is called the New Calvinism. And today we're going to be sort of answering a couple of questions and, and, and or at least starting this conversation off with a first time guest. But we're going to be answering questions like what makes it new? Should we rejoice? Um, should some of it kind of cause us to be a little bit hesitant to embrace it? What some concerns of its, we should we have? Yeah, what, yeah. What concerns should we should we have? So, with us to talk all about it is the editor and contributor to the book, The New Calvinism, New Reformation or Theological Fad. Our guest serves as the pastor of Praise Mills Baptist Church in Douglasville, Georgia, just west of Atlanta. He is the founding director of the G3 Conference, which we're going to get to. The author of the theology blog, DeliveredByGrace.com. In addition, he also studied at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, where he earned his MDiv and DMIN in expository preaching. Thank you, Dr. Josh Bice, for joining us today. Glad to be with you guys. So we first met after the G3 conference, the Sunday after the, the conference ended, and that's where I got to, to meet you and actually got to find out that you are the director of G3 in that service. I found out that your church... Um, holds that this conference that is, that thousands of people come to, and I remember my first comments to you were, "Wow, there's no excuse anymore for <laughs> churches to to hold conferences like this, just as as big as it was." And and uh, and and your church was involved, and and that was really awesome. I just wanted to to kind of, for you to kind of talk about G3 and how that's kind of developed. I thought it was an amazing conference, the first conference that I've ever, uh, reform conference that I've ever been that's like that. So yeah, if you could talk about that, that'd be great. So the the G3 conference basically started back in 2013. We had a desire to have a Bible conference in the Atlanta area for surrounding churches and other Christians to come and just be encouraged and equipped with sound biblical preaching. And so we thought we'd have a couple of hundred people maybe and in the surrounding areas who would join us. 
And so we set a date, we established a name for it. We wanted to call it G3, which stands for Gospel, Grace, and Glory. We wanted it to be known up front from the very beginning that this was not a pep rally for Christians or some sort of just get together for lattes and Bible study, but it was a serious theological conference, right? a theology conference. And so we, we didn't want to blush about that. We didn't want to uh, misdirect anyone. And so that was the reason for the name. And when we set the date for January of that particular year, sometime about December, we had to shut down registration because we had sold out. Now, our church campus is certainly not a mega church by any stretch, Mm -hmm. so we can fit about 800 people at the most in the sanctuary, and our church had committed that year, uh, obviously, to just serve people, just serve fellow Christians and pastors and their wives and whoever might come, and so we had an overflow section set up in our gymnasium, which we were using for the bookstore and the exhibit hall and the meal rooms for the catered meals that were provided. Mm-hmm. And so uh, that was j- just sort of shocking, to be honest. And so we started looking at where people were coming from, and it turns out they were coming from all around the, the country and some outside of the country. We had college students sleeping in our parking lot. Wow. And so in their vehicles. Mm-hmm. So I had to say, no, you're not, you're not going to sleep in your car. You're going to actually come to my house and sleep in our guest bedroom. And so it was just, it was just very odd for us to see how things exploded the first year. And so that was really the way that we would roll for the first four years. Uh, we would take a theme each year. The first year we centered on the gospel. What is the true gospel? And then we would go through other themes as the years would develop, such as the importance for the Word of God and the doctrine of the Trinity and the doctrine of the church. And then eventually arriving at 2016, we would see that pattern continuing, selling out in December, starting a waiting list, having people beg us to come. And we were having to turn a lot of people away. And we thought, well, we're going to do a Reformation conference in 2017. So why don't we consider praying about moving to another venue, another conference center that could actually have more uh, opportunities for people to join with us. And so that was the decision. It was it was a very difficult decision, to be honest, as the elders and I, as we prayed and thought and talked about uh, that transition, the church had to, uh, you know, really be on board with the, the transition because they were accustomed to serving and attending the conference on our church campus, and then it eventually moved to about 25 minutes away. But the long and short is when we moved to the convention center, we went from about 750 to 800 in attendance to 2,500 that first year. Mm -hmm. And then we, the second year we were at the convention center, we decided not to come back to the church campus after we uh, basically did a a post-conference review after 2017 so 2018, we had just under 3,000. 2019, this past January, we had over 4,600 people who were in attendance at the conference. Mm-hmm. So the Lord has done all of this. Um, I've had people call me and ask me for like a secret blueprint on how to develop a conference. <laughs> I don't have that. Yeah. Um, what I can say is that God did it. 
and he can do it again. So pray and serve and whatever God does and wants to accomplish through you, he can certainly do just that. Yeah. Amen. And how many different denominations are represented at this conference, Josh? Yeah, so we, from from year one, that's a great question, by the way. Um, from year one, so we're, uh, our church is associated with the Southern Baptist Convention. We're a 177-year-old church. Wow. Uh, so we predate the Southern Baptist Convention. Mm-hmm. We've tried to work within the convention as much as we can, although we don't agree with a lot of things that happen in the SBC. Sure. But year one, we decided we wanted to invite other individuals who are outside of Baptist life and Southern Baptist culture to mm-hmm. preach at the conference. So we had Joel Beakey the first year. Wow. Um, we had another gentleman who's a friend of mine here to do a breakout session. He he pastors he pastored at that time in Douglas County, and now he pastors out of state. Who's also part of the PCA. Hmm. And so we have various different denominational groups that are engaged, such as the Southern Baptist Convention, the PCA. We have non-denominational groups. We have Bible churches. So it's it's a pretty wide mix. Wow, that's great. And is this geared mainly towards pastors and church leaders, or is it open to anybody? So it's open to anyone. On purpose, we determined not to make it a pastor's conference. Okay. So it's a conference that's open to the entire family. So we have an increasing number of families who are mm-hmm. showing up at the conference each year with you know uh, multiple children, and it's just a, a really wonderful thing to see. That's great. Yeah, I saw families, I saw young people, elderly people. I mean, it was every you know type of ethnicity, culture was was definitely there. And uh, the one thing that about this conference and I don't say this in a bad way but it is exhausting <laughs> like if you if you love uh, expository preaching and you want to receive I mean this this conference is I mean right Josh it's from like 9 a.m. all the way to 8:30 p.m. Uh, just actually, break. actually if you'll remember we actually finished one of the sessions I believe it was Friday evening uh-huh. uh, about 10 o'clock at night yeah so wow. I mean we're steady rolling, but yes. on that note, I have some good news. Mm. We are going to be releasing our new plan and schedule moving forward for 2020 very soon, and we have some very strategic uh, developments and changes that we're doing with the schedule because what we would like to do is make all of those families that we were discussing a moment ago, mm-hmm. we would like to just make the conference enjoyable and not feeling like you're having to choose between sleep and conference or fellowship and breakout sessions or food and preaching. So we're going to try to finish every evening at about 7 or 7.30 and then let everyone go eat supper and enjoy their night Mm -hmm. together. Okay. That's great. It's going to be really good. Yeah, well, it's it's an amazing uh, conference, Dr. Bison. Just my time there, I was tremendously blessed. Actually, the first two days, I actually wasn't feeling too well, but even at that, I was I was I was thoroughly enjoying it. So it was it was great stuff. Um, so yeah, now, now on now on to the uh, the book, the new Calvinism, new Reformation, or theological fad. Uh, there has been, like I said in the introduction, a, a, a resurgence in the interests of the doctrines of grace or Calvinism, if people understand it in that way, Protestant Reformation, the Reformers. And in the preface of the book, uh, you quoted in, that in 
2009, Time Magazine ran an article titled 10 Ideas Changing the World Right Now, uh, claiming third on the list was the new Calvinism. <laughs> what do you believe to be the cause of this resurgence? Yeah, that's a really good question. Well, obviously, I think that we would be fooling ourselves if we think that it just emerged out of you know uh, some sort of theological vacuum or think tank. It, it certainly did not. Um, it's connected. I think I think it's really important important that as we look at history, we think about those people that we stand upon their shoulders. So we're connected to individuals who have gone before us in church history. Um, and it doesn't take a historian to see that and understand that. In fact, all of us should understand that. Um, but I think that we're undoubtedly connected to at least this new Calvinism um, is connected to Charles Spurgeon. It's connected to an unwillingness of Spurgeon to capitulate with the culture of his day and uh, engaging in that downgrade controversy. He stood upon the truth of the Word of God, and although he was heavily criticized, if you just look at Spurgeon's ministry over the years, there's a reason that we still quote Spurgeon so often. It's a reason that, you know, history sort of um, at that time painted him out to be some sort of villain in, in many ways. I mean, at least the culture did. Sure. But if you look at now where Spurgeon stands, he stands at a high mark in church history. Hmm. And it's not uncommon to go into a Starbucks or some coffee shop in, in any town in America and see a bearded millennial wearing a Spurgeon t-shirt, you know, drinking coffee and reading out of a Reformation study Bible. Hmm. So it's, it's very clear that Spurgeon, uh, in many ways, was the forerunner, uh, long forerunner of this movement. But then you go to other individuals that we haven't forgotten as well, and that's Martin Lloyd-Jones. Mm. I mean, if you think about his ministry and what what the Lord did through that individual uh, and how he stands uh, at a high mark in church history, it's it's extremely important to see that, that connection. And then I think it's really critical that as we think about the new Calvinism movement, you think about uh, publishing companies and you think about the ministries that sort of— uh, became a catalyst for the, the grand truths of the doctrines of grace, such as Banner of Truth. And then you have the, the rise of uh, conservative denominations um, that have been used in many ways, like the PCA. And then you have modern you know, figures that we, that we love and that we have grown to love over the uh, over the years and that would be individuals like john MacArthur and rc sproul undoubtedly mm -hmm. john piper as well so when you get to you, you have john MacArthur and rc sproul standing firm upon the inerrancy of the bible back during those you know days where we were debating the inerrancy of the bible and you have the southern baptist convention that was very much a part of that fight okay so you have this large massive battleship that had become liberal theologically mm. and you have these individuals that are fighting it out for the inerrancy of the bible mm. and so god spares the southern baptist convention and the flagship seminary of the southern baptist convention is the southern baptist theological seminary and who was brought on to lead that institution back to a conservative ground and position 
and that was none other none other than uh, Albert Moeller. Mm. Yeah. And you start thinking about Albert Moeller and his place in all of this, and you see that he was used greatly to bring that institution to uh, what is now the largest seminary, a conservative seminary, which we're grateful for. And then throughout the years, you would have those friendships of Al Mohler and Mark Dever, and you would have nine Marks ministries, and you would have the formation of conferences like T4G and publishing companies that are pumping out lots of uh, books on this very subject, like Crossway Publishing Company. So mm. sort of put all of this into, you know, this this uh, blender, if you will, or you just connect the dots to see how all of these different arms come back to the center hub from church history all the way to modern day conferences. And then you have the rise of the internet and the blogs and you have all of these individuals who are writing articles and sharing articles, and then you have the rise of social media. And so yeah. it, it was sort of a, a perfect storm, if you will. If you think back, the historic Reformation, you have Martin Luther walking down to the castle door in Wittenberg, and you have him nailing this 95 Theses, this document for debate, to the castle church door. And many people, you know, they— back in 2017 were, you know, really studying about the Reformation and talking about the Reformation. And, you know, there's this idea of why did he go down and nail it to the castle church door? You, you have all this this talk. Well, the mm -hmm. fact of the matter was it was a common way to have a debate, to have a conversation. Right. So he didn't have Twitter. He didn't have Facebook. He didn't have Pinterest. <laughs> so he nails this thesis to the castle church door and people started talking, and he wanted to have an internal conversation within the Catholic Church, but certainly that did not happen. And soon enough, it became an external reformation or a divide, an explosion. So you start thinking about how technology was used during the Protestant Reformation. There was this invention just a few years before he nailed that thesis to the Castle Church door called the movable type printing press, the Gutenberg press. Mm. And so his students would take that thesis and they would have it uh, typeset and and they would have it uh, printed and then they would distribute they would take it and spread it around and 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 hand it out to various different people and have conversations in various locations. And it just really sparked what we know as the Reformation. Mm. And so you think about technology in his day, and you think about technology in our day, and there is a connection, I believe, that we can't yeah. overlook. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I agree, and I, I could relate. As I'm reading the book, um, a lot of things are, pointing, are, are being pointed out in myself just like four years ago when I came to know Reformed Theology, and you're absolutely correct. I was... Uh, stumbled upon, uh, you know, videos from Alpha and Omega Ministries, Apologia Radio, um, you know, conferences like G3, just coming across clips, sermons. I was given what is Reformed theology. Those means really woke me up to, uh, made me woke <laughs> to to, <laughs> reform, to reform theology. And uh, I would say, I would say, let's uh, use yeah. let's use a right. term. Like, yeah, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. We'll stray away yeah. from that one. We don't want to confuse yeah. you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, but I, I, I was just saying, I, I relate, and, and I, I wanted you to, I would like to get some insight on this too, because at least for me, when I came to know uh, to the understanding of reform theology in a lot of this. Um, 
some of my, um, I guess it, it was a, I kind of overreacted in some ways because I was coming out of the Word of Faith uh, prosperity gospel movement, and some of that could have been like an overreaction. I think with a lot of millennials, uh, I, I'm 20, 25, just turned 26, and, and I came out of that movement, and to me it was like something just new hit me. And I always describe it as a grenade going off in my head, but I, I wanted to get your thoughts on just, you know, kind of that, of some of the millennials coming out of this uh, Word of Faith prosperity movement as well. Well, Conrad Mbewe is one of the authors in this book that we've published. And uh, when I was with him in Zambia, I, I asked him a question. I said, what's the biggest challenge that you have pastoring and planting churches and training ministers of the gospel here in Zambia? And he said, undoubtedly, it's what you see on the street corners. As we were driving down the road, there were poster after poster and advertisement after advertisement for some apostle and some healing service. Mm-hmm. And so uh, he's battling it out over there in that context uh, as it pertains to the issues of the miraculous gifts and the charismatic movement. But how did it arrive in Zambia? Well, it was exported from here to Zambia. And so um, that's a massive thing. But I would say this, it's not just the charismatic stuff, but I think it's just like in Southern Baptist culture, it was a, a years and years and years of superficial preaching within evangelicalism. Mm-hmm. And finally, it was it was like someone was offering people uh, meat and potatoes rather than cotton candy. Yes. With some substance to the preaching, and they were getting it on YouTube. For instance, another friend of mine who's also an author in this book, Paul Washer, when he went and preached in that uh, that uh, Alabama Baptist youth event mm-hmm. for thousands of youth, and he's standing on that platform and he's making a modern day illustration uh, related to uh, a lack of holiness and a pursuit of holiness, and they started clapping. And he takes one step forward and points out and says, "I don't know why you're clapping. I'm talking about you." Mm-hmm. <laughs> It was as if you could hear a pin drop. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, it was like the, the wind was just taken out of their sails immediately. And the rest of the sermon was basically uh, him preaching the gospel to what he believed to be and what was probably true, countless numbers of unconverted teenagers that were all stirred up in religiosity, but it was empty religiosity. Mm, yeah. And so through that one sermon that he did not publish online, by the way, someone else did, and they started getting just loads of mail and phone calls about it. God has been pleased to save thousands upon thousands of individuals just through that one sermon. Wow. So it's modern technology that God has used to to save people from this superficial gospel-like preaching that has just— just swallowed up evangelicalism through yeah. the years. Amen. Mm. So in your book, The New Calvinism, Josh, you say that uh, the New Calvinism movement is a broad network that spans across geographical, racial, and denominational boundaries. I know you already talked about uh, the inerrancy of Scripture being one of the marks of the uh, New Calvinism. Can you talk about some of the other marks of New Calvinism and flesh that out a little bit more for us? Yeah, I mean, I think that I think that there um, is this this hunger for truth, 
And where will we find truth if we're not going to be committed to the Word of God? So there's an authority problem, I think, that just transcends evangelicals today. Hmm. So you have people trying to figure out, okay, well, well, how far is too far? You hear that question among teenagers. And then you have others that say, well, do we even need church membership? Or can we just get our theology at the local coffee shop and YouTube? Mm -hmm. Goodbye. Right. And so um, I think that uh, for many people within the New Calvinism movement, for especially early on, now this movement, I would say, has derailed in in many places. Um, I I can say that we can complement the New Calvinism movement for the hunger for truth, but in many ways, I think the New Calvinism movement has has gone off track. And so part of this book's goal was to just sort of, you know, critique those areas. But I would say that uh, another marker early on for the movement was a desire to understand what uh, authority is and, and, and where they should or should not be submitting to true authority as God has ordained. Mm. And I think that that was certainly true at least having a hunger for the Word of God, the inerrancy of Scripture, the authority of the Bible, but also really just having this true understanding of who God is. Mm. So, again, another figure that had much influence in this movement, this this resurgence, if you will, was R.C. Sproul. And how do we know Dr. Sproul and his ministry? Well, it's really, in many ways— Many of us have come to know him, at least historically, through his writings and his preaching and his teaching on the holiness of God. Mm. So there was this transcendent understanding coming through the preached word and through the doctrines of grace to say, God is holy and we are not. And what in the world does that mean for us? Mm-hmm. Having a high view of God was a massive marker for this movement. Mm. And then, once again, uh, John Piper's influence, I think, in many ways, was very much geared towards this desire to impact the world with the gospel. So now that we know the gospel, now that we see God for who He is, at least as He has revealed Himself to us in the pages of the Bible, now we can't be content to just have the gospel here. We need to take the gospel to every people group. And so Piper's influence on this movement was certainly one that led people to to pursue missions and to be engaged in missions, whether it be sending or praying or going or some of all of the above. You know, it's it's just uh, a wonderful thing to see how he influenced in that way. Right. Yeah, I think that uh, the high view of God is something that I've seen uh, in, in young people around here, just that, uh, and it's so important, having that understanding that God is not only a, a being to be loved, but to be feared. And you can't detach one from the other. You know, they both, they go together. And so having that understanding of God in his sovereignty um, and uh, being a being that we not only love, but that we we must have a holy fear for, as opposed to just this this kind of good luck charm or this amulet that I go to, you know, when right. I need something done. And yeah. uh, so I see a, I see a return to that, and that's such a critical factor in in uh, 
the maturity, I think, of, of people and growing in a biblical understanding of who God is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And that is critical. And another thing to mark, I think it would be critical for us to market, um, would be a desire for preaching, mm. for preached word. Yeah. And I think that for many years before this resurgence, you had people that were bored with preaching and, you know, they were starting to, and, and that's what the new, or you might say the, uh, the church growth method did within evangelicalism was it sort of took the pulpit and put it off to the side and said, well, we're going to have musicals and mm-hmm. drama and all this other stuff. And the resurgence of sound biblical theology brought the pulpit back to front and center. Amen. And so I think that that's really critical to see that. And I think that the high mark in church history when the church is strongest is when the church has the highest view of preaching. Mm. Yeah. But when the the church goes through periods of decline, and you can always track this, usually there's a some sort of deficient understanding of where preaching should be in the life of the church. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's both expositional and experiential, and that's right. uh, you know we can't detach those from one from the other either. That's what I love about uh, well, there are many, but listening to Joel Beakey, for example, just yeah. uh, you know the exposition and the the application that comes from that. Yeah. So in what ways are the new Calvinists different from the old and the old Calvinists different from the new? Yeah, that's a good question. I think in many ways the the original new Calvinism movement, what differentiated the two would have been very minimal differences. I think that in the beginning, uh, it would have been more of a youthful movement, the new Calvinism movement, whereas the old traditional Calvinists would have been more of the the older, mature, uh, settled group of individuals. Um, and, and so you have this resurgence. And then once again, that resurgence was crossing not only geographic and ethnic boundaries, but also um, denominational boundaries. So now you have a new wave of Baptists who are now saying, oh, hang on a second. My pastor is quoting a lot from Spurgeon, but he rejects the doctrines of grace. What's the problem here? Mm. Uh, And so then you have people that are saying, well, this pastor is saying that Spurgeon is good here, and he's quoting Spurgeon, but he's he's saying that Calvinism is anti-missions. Hmm. And so then they would start, you know, doing their homework and figuring out, hang on a second, Spurgeon was very evangelistic and yeah. missions-focused. And what about all the individuals that came out of Calvin's church that went and gave their lives for the gospel mm-hmm. in church planting? And so they started, you know, just really just doing honest research and figuring out, hey, that's not true. That's not so— uh, these individuals like John Payton, and uh, and then you cross over into the Baptist world, and you have William Carey, and you have uh, all these individuals throughout history that were very much passionate about about missions. So you have this this difference. Maybe at first was maybe age, but then you have some other differences, such as well, you have some groups within the new Calvinism uh, movement that might be more loose on the issues related to the miraculous gifts. So you're going to have certain groups that are going to call themselves uh, charismatic Calvinists, for instance, Mm -hmm. and that 
that really makes a lot of people nervous. And, and I think that rightly so. I think we should be a little nervous when we hear that type of language. I think we need to find out what does that mean. But certainly we're not talking about a Benny Hinn type. We're talking about individuals who are conservative, and yet at the same time they hold to the continuation of the miraculous gifts. So you're going to have some distinctions uh, within the camps of what you might call the historic old Calvinists and the new Calvinists that were emerging in the very beginning. Now the new Calvinism movement has some age upon it. So now it's a bit older and a bit more settled. And as I've stated before, somewhat derailed in many ways. Uh, And there's some problems within this movement, certainly. But um, I, I would say early on, that would have been the main distinctions. All right. And then, so in, in what ways do the new Calvinists cause concern? If there was a, you know, this young millennial teenager sitting across from you, as you've described, with a with a beard and a Spurgeon shirt and, you know, what 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 would you let him know? And what what concerns do you have with this mu- with this uh, movement? Yeah, I think I think first and foremost, um, I think that we need to have a complete revival, you might say, on a commitment to the local church. Mm, yeah. And I think that you have a lot of millennials that are excited about their doctrine, they're excited about the truths of Scripture and their big view of God, but they still have a small view of the local church. Yeah. And I think that that's troubling for me. And this is not true across the board, uh, so we need to be honest, but it is a problem that I see. And I see a lot of younger people who they have their study Bible and they have their YouTube playlist and they have their new earbuds and they have their favorite coffee shop and and they're somewhat disconnected from the local church. Or they might be coming to these truths on a college campus, but yet they're they're committed to a parachurch ministry, but they're not committed to a local church. Mm. And I think that we need to be very, very honest with how troubling that is. And we can't we can't journey alone. I mean, God's never saved us so that we could journey alone. And he wants us to be a part of a community and not just any community. He wants us to be a part of a local, tangible, visible New Testament church. And I think that that's critical for us to understand. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, as imperfect as the local church may be in many ways, because it's made up of imperfect individuals, we Mm -hmm. all need we need to be a part of a local congregation because that's how we how we grow. You know, yeah. Well, I mean, back to the authority problem. I mean, you think about this. I mean, if you have your your study Bible and your YouTube and your earbuds and and all that in your coffee shop, but what about the ordinary means of grace? Yeah, Amen. What about the Lord's table? Are you yeah. are you worshiping at the Lord's table at the coffee shop? Mm-hmm. And then what <laughs> happens if you what happens if you end up uh, going off track and you actually end up capitulating in some area and you're stuck in a in a rut of sin? What accountability do you have? Yeah. Where right. is church discipline? And so we need to be clear that the local church is not an option for us to consider. It is a command for us to follow. We need to be engaged in the life of a local church. Mm. Yeah. Amen. Amen. I was reading a book by Joel Beakey, and he says, a lone ranger ends up being a dead ranger. <laughs> yeah, that's Christian. 
Yeah, yeah very, very, very accurate. Um, so you contributed to a chapter titled Sola Scriptura. Is the Bible enough? And the one thing about the Reformation that you write, quote, the, Re- the Reformation was about the recovery and the authority and the sufficiency of the Scriptures. Um, and this was something. This was a doctrine that was so revolutionary to me when I came to know Reformed theology. But in terms of the, Calv- the new Calvinist movement, in what ways have they sort of placed, you've talked a little bit about it, but the doctrine of sola scriptura aside and sort of have come to almost this pragmatism in uh, in, in their method and in their kind of outreach. Yeah. Well, again, this is not to broad brush in any way sure. because this is not true of everyone, but there are some problems as it pertains to um, a commitment to sola scriptura, but at the same time, a commitment to pragmatism, which has been a thorn in the church's side for ages. Um I, I think that it's critical for us to think about if today you were to go to Geneva and you were to walk into the the church that Calvin pastored, plastered there on the wall is a slogan that emerges from the Reformation period, post Tenebrox Luke's, mm-hmm. post Tenebrox Luke's. And when you, when you hear that, it's after darkness, light. And what was the light that came from the Reformation, well, it was the light of the Word of God. And it was the Word of God that produced, in many ways, the Reformation. Some have said, how did the Reformation happen? And they've studied Luther's life, and they think about all the things that Luther did. It wasn't just nailing a document to the Castle Church door in Wittenberg. We must understand this. This post-Tenebrous Luke's has this idea of it was through the Word of God. So one of the crowning achievements of Luther's ministry during the Reformation period was his translation of the Bible into the German language. Mm -hmm. And so it was the Word of God that was unleashed upon the people. Now, this Reformation, this Reformation or resurgence of New Calvinism has been documented, it's been debated, it's been discussed, and all of this. But I would just say that I would tap the brakes a little bit. Uh, as we think about the, as we complement the new Calvinism, to think about when we hear about church plants, even among what we call the Young Restless Reformed or the New Calvinism group, and we hear them conducting surveys in the community to find out what the church or what the community likes so that the church can sort of not cater to them, because I don't want to be unfair, mm-hmm. but they want to find out a little bit about the community so that they can know how to structure or design their set or if they're going to appeal to one particular age demographic then they want to try to you know make the stage design look a certain way and and all of that is it's what i would simply call pragmatism and i'm not saying that you have to be you know antiquarian and and ancient in your approach and old-fashioned and outdated in your decor or any of that. I'm not saying that that's what we should do. I'm just simply stating that when when it comes to the preaching of the Word of God and it comes to the planting of a a local church in a community, we shouldn't be interested in finding out what unbelievers want in the community. We need to preach the gospel and then bring people in. Then when you have Christian— individuals that are now baptized followers of Christ and can come into the life of the church and have some sort of 
uh, ability to help with your decor or help with this, that, or the other, then then get them involved. But yeah. you don't have to try to figure out a way to create your coffee shop and then bring your church in as sort of a sideshow to your coffee shop yeah. so that you can you know, reach out to millennials. I just think that we need to be very careful in how we plant churches and be very much steadfast in our approach to a commitment to the Word of God. Um, just one other one other uh, point that I wanted to kind of have you talk about a little bit. When in your book, you says it says when Christ rules a person's heart, holiness is the byproduct. Could you talk a little bit about that and the connection between uh, being a uh, a, a Bible believing Christian? and um, piety because I think uh, sometimes there's there's a real um, affinity or an, an, an affection a desire mm-hmm. to be a part of the you know the so-called new Calvinist movement but that uh, the piety that should go along with it when Christ rules our heart is is often lacking and I'm not saying that uh, it's just in the new Calvinism movement we see it we see it everywhere, and it's not across the board, obviously. But can you talk a little bit more about that and and how that those two go together? That is a fantastic question. I think that styles come and styles go. So when the New Calvinism movement was, was at its heyday, beards were in style. Um, it may come one day that the beards go back out of style and people <laughs> shake it. But yep. if you're more interested and in in identifying with a movement Mm. whether it be cigars and bourbon and tattoos and a long beard if that's what you think calvinism is then you're missing amen amen so that's not what it is and i think that instead of trying to figure out a way to uh, identify externally i think that we should try to identify internally Mm. with what these doctrines teach with what this this truth holds. And I think that as we study the Word of God more and as we see this transcendent, true, holy view of God, God is not like us. He is other than us. Mm-hmm. And the more that we continue to study and see God for who He is, there will be this move of what we call progressive sanctification, this experiential move of knowing knowing God and then seeing ourselves for who we are, being dissatisfied with our sin, mortifying the flesh, that old saying of the mortification of sin. Mm, yeah. You know, we talk about, you know, Bible translations and whatnot, but some of the newer translations don't have that. And I, I preach out of the ESV, but you don't see that mortify the flesh, that language. What does mortification mean? It means right. to put something to death. Yeah. Uh, we should not be content with sin anymore. Yeah. So um, if, if, if you think that you're going to identify with a certain religious movement by the type of blue jeans that you wear or the T-shirts that you wear or how long your beard may be or the, the you know, frame color of your glasses or whatever it might be, <laughs> you're completely missing it. Yeah. That's, not, that's not what this is about. This is about understanding who God is and then it has a radical transformation upon who we actually are. Amen. 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 
And Dr. Bice, one definitely one of the last questions I wanted to ask because it just popped into my head. And I was having this discussion with Jeremy actually last night, and we were talking about the new Calvinism. We're talking about the program, and he thinks that it's it's going down, like sort of this sort of resurgence of reform theology, this hype is sort of moving in in this downstream. And I told him I think it's actually going upstream because we've been seeing, at least I've been seeing on social media, there's such a fight against reform theology now. You have podcasts like it's here in Texas as well, Soteriology 101, if you're familiar. We have people like, uh, you know, some of the fundamental Baptists creating a documentary because I think people are now leaving in, in numbers and realizing there's something to be said here and something to be looked at in Reformed theology, and I would like to get to get some of your thoughts on, on that, if, if you just think it's going downstream or, or upstream in this sort of resurgence. Well, I think that's an interesting question. I think, as I've stated before, that much of the new Calvinism movement that we're documenting and talking about here, um, I think is sort of, uh, sort of derailing in many ways. I think it's I think that the movement itself has lost sight of its of its original goals. Hmm. And so I don't know that the new Calvinism movement, I mean, I think that it's probably too early to say and to pass judgment at this right. point. I think that we probably need a few generations yet to come to see what will be the historic understanding of this movement. So it's still in progress. I think that maybe we should separate new Calvinism from just the resurgence of, of the, the doctrines of grace or the resurgence yeah. of, of the true understanding of who God is. Hmm. Um, and so I would say the new Calvinism movement has plateaued or maybe even declining in many ways. Okay. Mm-hmm. And I think that there probably should be another book written to document that, and there probably will be in the days to come, that sort of sh- demonstrates how progressive uh, theology and progressive political understandings related to such things like uh, neo-Marxism mm-hmm. or social justice and things of that nature have sort of derailed this movement. Right, And as a result of that, you have people that are kind of stuck in the middle to try to figure out, well, what do we do? Well, obviously, you don't just sit there. You don't just do nothing. You continue to move forward. So I don't know what this means for new Calvinism in the future, but I just think that as it pertains to the understanding of who God is and the growth of individuals coming to the knowledge of the truth and having a deep theology and a transcendent understanding of God and a passionate heart for missions and a, a, a strong hold on, you know, the sufficiency of Scripture and the inerrancy of the Bible, that sort of thing. I still think that there's very much a resurgence happening today. Okay. And I think that there's a resurgence happening across the world, not just here in America. But will it be known as the Young Restless Reformed as it moves forward? I don't I don't really think so, Okay, um, but I do believe that there's still a resurgence taking place. All right. All right. Amen. Well, Dr. Bice, it was, a, it was an honor and privilege to have you on the program. And as always, before we end, we give our guests the opportunity to share the gospel. So, Dr. Bice, what is the gospel? Yeah, fantastic. Well, it's been good to be with you today. I would say the gospel is simply this. If you take the, the, the word gospel itself, it means good news. And if you ask someone today if they need good news, they're going to ask you why they need good news. 
But the just the definition of the gospel itself presupposes that there's bad news. So if you start with the law of God, the law of God shows us two things. It shows us who God is, that he's holy, and here's what he demands. And then it shows us who we are, that we're sinful, and that we can't live up to God's demands. So then it points us outside of ourselves. It points us outside of culture. It points us outside of uh, empty religion. And it points us to one who has gone before us, the only one who has ever kept the law of God Uh, in totality, and that is the Son of the living God. So from Genesis to Revelation, we have one book made up of 66 books that points to Jesus Christ. The, the, The Bible is a Jesus book. The first mention of the gospel was in Genesis 3.15, and we have the gospel that's being preached all throughout the Old Testament with types and foreshadowing of the one who would come, and that is undoubtedly Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. So when Joseph was had discovered that his betrothed wife-to-be was with child, he was discouraged. He was looking for an opportunity to put her away privately and to issue, issue her a bill of divorcement. But an angel appeared to him. In Matthew one twenty one. the angel said to Joseph, "'She will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus.'" for he shall save his people from their sins. Jesus came on a seeking and saving mission. And when he died on the cross, he said clearly, it is finished. So he came to do exactly what he was sent to do, and that was to redeem God's people from their sins, each and every one of them. And so if you go to Romans, you'll see that language that Everyone who is foreknown will eventually be glorified. So uh, there's not one dropout along the way. So God always accomplishes his mission. And one of the clearest declarations of the gospel, I think, is in Paul's letter to the church at Corinth. And in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, he says, For I delivered unto you as of first importance that which I also received unto myself, how that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So how do we know that Jesus Christ is the only way that a person can be reconciled to a holy God? Well, it's simply this, because Jesus said that. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes unto the Father but by me. That's John fourteen six. But how do we know that that's true? Well, we know it's true because after he was put to death on that Roman cross, three days later, he was raised from the dead, proving that he is the son of the living God and that by his resurrection, he alone has authority to forgive sin. So we can come to Christ and we can receive that reconciliation. And that's the only means of hope for for unbelieving sinners in this world is Jesus Christ. So I would encourage or urge anyone that's listening to this today to turn to Christ because one day he will return. And the Bible says, every knee shall bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, that every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. That Amen. Indeed, great news. Well, thank you, Dr. Bice, again for for coming on. Um, where can our audience find you? Uh, some book recommendations for them? 
Uh, yeah, so you can find me. I blog on a regular basis at my blog. That's deliveredbygrace.com. Um, if you want some good book recommendations, I mean, I think that there's some some really good books that have been written in recent days. I want to point anyone that's studying pastoral theology. There's a book by Albert Martin titled The Man of God, His Calling and Godly Life. And then also, as it pertains to the church, as we were talking about just a moment ago, there is a book by Wayne Mack that's called Life in the Father's House. Hmm. And I would really encourage people to read it. It's, it's, it's really just a simple, easy read. I, I lead a book study here in our town for a group of men. And we're reading through that book right now, and it's just loaded with really good information about being committed to the local church. Awesome. 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 Well, we got to get you back on uh, the program again. I know we, we had Dr. White last week, and I told him we're going to do a series on the woke movement. So we, we <laughs> might do something. So I might might be sending you an email to, to do something on that, uh, do a series or something. But it, it, again, I said it again, but it, w- it was great to have you on. We got to get you back. Absolutely. Well, it's been my privilege, and I look forward to, to uh, upcoming conversations in the days to follow. All righty, all righty. If you would like to learn more about Bridge Ministries, please visit our website at bridgemenlaredo.org and click the About Us tab. We are we are a Reformed Christian bookstore and coffee shop who is dedicated to discipling and equipping the saints for the work of ministry and building up the body of Christ. Though we are not a church, we are indeed a support to other churches and ministries in our community and out uh, into the nations, providing affordable new and used Bibles and gospel-centered Christian books and study resources. We're not only a gospel outreach to our local community, but also out into the nations and through this podcast. Please prayerfully consider supporting Bridge Ministries through a one-time or monthly gift. This allows us to continue not only Bridge Radio, but also the Bible studies and conferences, lectures, and more that we have planned out in the future. So, as always, ladies and gentlemen, what is your only comfort in life and in death that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death? to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. See you on the next episode. Thank you.